Welcome to the fantastic world of Hannah and Barbara, a celebration of Bill Hannah, Joe Barbara, and the thousands of people, past and present, who have shared in their entertainment tradition. And now your host, Greg Airbar. Thank you, Chris Anthony. Thank you for joining us, folks. We are very, very thrilled to have with us today a guest who has worked her magic around the world. I don't even know how many countries Andrea Canny has performed in, but the country that I was in was called Walt Disney World, and she was a powerhouse of creativity because, well, we'll go into that. We'll let you find out. We're going to also talk about a Hanna-Barbera entity. Kings Island is the park where they originally started appearing. And before anything else, I want to introduce and say welcome, Andrea Canny. Hi. Thanks for having me, Greg. I'm excited. Well, this is really cool because Andrea and I have known each other for many years during her many roles and also for many projects that I've worked on. And watching Andrea take an idea you have or a script thing that you've done and run with it is really, really fun. She sings like an angel. She has a wicked sense of humor. And she has worked with the biggest and the best. I want to tell the beautiful Andrea Canny story because there's so much of King's Island in that. For those of you who don't know, we'll also explain what King's Island is and where it is because it's actually from where you grew up. Yeah, Cincinnati, Ohio. It's where I started my career, actually, in 1985. When Hanna-Barbera began having their characters there, it was when the Taft Broadcasting Company bought them. And then suddenly there was the happy land of Hanna-Barbera. That land changed over the years. There was a ride with a giant television that was like Mm -hmm. Small World where you drove through. And you can actually see what that ride was like on YouTube. But King's Island is the one that, if you've seen the Partridge Family episode or the Brady Bunch episode, it has the big Eiffel Tower. When you walk in, you see that big, long fountain that leads up to the Eiffel Tower. So I always thought that was majestic and pretty. There is a lot of rides there. King's Island is renowned for the roller coasters and some of the most famous ones there. It's a theme park, but it's also a combination theme park, but more of the traditional rides, but nice and pristine and took the standard uh, theme park type rides that everybody knew, but put it into this bright, happy, chipper place, sort of the way Disney did it. You can see some of the employees on the Partridge family. They look like Burger King employees. They have the same kind of orange (laughs) (laughs) outfits and the caps. Andrea worked at Disney for many, many years playing in some very important shows, some things that made a lot of history, as well as the cruise line and Tokyo Disneyland. But it all began at Kings Island. You grew up in the area, and it was the place to go. Yeah, I pretty much tailed along with friends whose parents would take us there. And this is before I even knew I could sing, and I just gravitated towards the shows. So I would sit and watch every single one of the shows, so five shows. Everybody else would be off doing the rides, and I was like, I'm, I'm going to be fine just sitting here watching That's Entertainment. I do remember one time I did go with some of my family because my sister was there, and I rode the Twin Racer. I was my first coaster ever, and I was small when I was a kid, and I thought I was going to fly out of that thing, you know, because there weren't any seatbelts. It was just the bar. I was tall enough... But I was a thin kid, and I was so terrified that I got off, and my sister was just laughing at me. And I'm like, what are you laughing at? And she goes, you are green. (laughs) (laughs) 
I was nine years old, and it was. Oh, but I loved that coaster. Once I calmed down, I started loving that. And of course, the Beast. You know, they actually have Coaster Fest every year. I had a friend who came into town for it, so all these coaster enthusiasts love to come ride the Beast and the Racer and whatever other ones that they have now, the new ones. But I didn't go a lot, but enough to really just think, gosh, I want to be up on that stage. I want to do what they're doing. And then when I realized that I could sing and that I had an affinity for it, then I started auditioning. Mm-hmm. And I think I got hired on my third audition. So I, I auditioned for a few years before I actually got hired. And I didn't realize until I got hired that I needed to know how to dance. You know, we had the dance audition. Mm-hmm. And I guess I did well enough, but I had no dance training whatsoever. You know, I didn't attend a Dolly Dinkle dance class at all when I was a kid. I didn't grow up doing anything other than dancing to Jesus Christ Superstar on Saturday when we had to do our vacuuming and dusting. <laughs> you know, but I realized, I guess I have to learn how to dance. And so the first job I got hired for was in 85, 1985, for Wunderbar, which was the German show, and Woodchopper's Ball Review, which was the 1940s show. Mm-hmm. And they were both in the Fest House. So we had two casts. Each cast had to do both shows. And I ended up having to leave that summer quite early on because I had to have knee surgery. Mm-hmm. And I was heartbroken. I was devastated. I had finally gotten hired at Kings Island, and now I was gone. You know, I'd gotten really close with my cast, and then all of a sudden I was out of the club oh. you know it's just what happens it yeah. wasn't like anybody purposely did that it was just you're no longer in the cast and it's not the same so i was petrified that i was never going to get hired again and luckily the next year they had separated the casts you either did the german show or the 40 show and so the next year i'm 86 i got hired to do the 40s show so i learned how to tap dance and i loved it we had a real band mm-hmm. and just Gosh, the caliber of musicians and people on stage was just so, so top level. And Stevie Rivers, who was our choreographer, may she rest in peace. That woman was fueled by stress, coffee, and cigarettes. God love her. She was a powerhouse and so talented and sweet and just fun and created a wonderful show. Then I think I did three Winterfests, three or four. That was the best. Winterfest was. Now, what is Winterfest? Winterfest is what they started to open up Kings Island for the winter, you know, the holiday time. Yeah. And so it opens on Black Friday and last day is New Year's Eve. And, you know, that big fountain that I talked about, they take that fountain and they turn it into an ice skating rink. I didn't know that. Oh, it's so beautiful. It puts you in the holiday spirit like nothing else. It's like walking into a Hallmark movie. So you've got this beautiful ice skating rink. And what's fun is now they actually have, say, for little kids who are too small to skate but want to be out there on the ice, they have these little strollers that are cute and decorative, but they're on blades. And so you can put the kids in there, and then you wear the skates and you push it around so they feel like they're skating, which is so sweet. What a great idea. Yeah. So they have a lot of lights this year. They just added 2 million more lights. And so everything's decorated. They have tons of shows. They have a parade. We didn't have a parade when I did it in the 80s, but they have a parade now. They have all different kinds of shows. Some are interactive, some are not. There's a tree lighting. From the Eiffel Tower, from the very top, they string lights out so it becomes a tree. Uh It's the kind of lights that are programmed so it can have different designs on it and colors. 
they have a tree lighting ceremony. So it's just super festive, and the hot chocolate is really good, and you get La Rosa's pizza, which there's something about that oven at King's Island that makes the best La Rosa's pizza you can get is at King's Island. I don't really? Know. There were certain food things. I remember on the back of a package of, I don't know if it was hot dogs or bologna, there was a King's Island ad. It was a so sausage company. Cons meats. It was Cons. It was Cons. Yeah, Cons was one of the big places. But now there's a Skyline Chili there, which is great. We didn't have that when I was growing up. So I started in 85, and then my last season was doing Dancing in the City in 89, uh-huh. after I came back from doing the SS Norway for six months. And then that was the last of my Kings Island years. And then I moved to New York and moved on to different things. And then in 90, I did a year in Europe uh-huh. doing 42nd Street. So all that tap dance training came in handy, which was great. So you toured yeah. Europe with that? Yeah, I toured Europe for a year, which was, I did not want to come home. <laughs> that must be really exciting. Oh my gosh, it was just amazing. And when I was on the cruise ship on the SS Norway, we did three different shows. We did, the singers did a cabaret we did a Vegas style show with headdresses and all that stuff. And then we did a book show and we did 42nd Street. It was an abridged version because it's on a cruise. Nobody wants to sit for two and a half hours with an interview. Well, Las Vegas but, does those too. Yeah. Yeah. But it was great. And I fell in love with the show. It was so much fun. And then I came back to Cincinnati, ended up getting work at the Oldenburg Brew Haha Review <laughs> in Florence, Kentucky. And a mutual friend who was in that cast in Europe, mm-hmm. one day he called me back in the time when you used landlines and oh, yeah, <laughs> those texting, things, no yeah. email. You called Sarah <laughs> and she put you through. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> On the party line. <laughs> so David called me and he said, send me your headshot and resume now. Send it. He said, somebody's leaving the cast. And so I got hired sight unseen just on his recommendation. So I flew to Vienna, Austria. I was there for the last 12 days. They had already been there the whole summer. And sad to say, my friend Donna Hagen turned her ankle, and so she was out for the last show. So I went in. So my very first show of 42nd Street in Europe was in Vienna in the same theater that the Magic Flute premiered. Oh, my goodness. Oh, wow. It was just incredible. I got to the theater really early to warm up and review things. And I remember just stretching on the stage, just sitting there and looking at the house. And I was just like in awe mm-hmm. of the history that was in that whole building. Just incredible. We were there. We closed. And then we went to Paris, which was beautiful. We were at the Chatelet Theater right on the Seine. In the girls' dressing room, you look out the window. Across the Seine is the Palais de Justice, where Marie Antoinette was held. You look to the left, there's Notre Dame. You look to the right, there's the Eiffel Tower. It was <laughs> It was sheer heaven. And anytime any of the girls would be complaining about anything, I'd be like, look out that window. (laughs) There's nothing to complain about. Then we went to Den Haag for a month in January, which was very cold. And we went back to Paris, and then we went to Munich, and then to Hamburg. And that was the end of my time with the show. And when I came back to Cincinnati... I was fully intending to go back out on the tour when it reopened, but I called some friends of mine that had worked at Disney, and I hadn't seen them in two years. I said, get me an audition so I can write this trip off. And they said, oh, great, there's this new show, Beauty and the Beast, that's going to come out, so you can audition for that. Perfect. I fly down on Friday, audition on Saturday, get offered the job on Sunday. 
Judy Lawrence, God Lover, the director, says to me, you know, we'd like to offer you one of the full-time Bell positions as Bell for the show, but we know you live out of town, so what would it take to relocate you? Now, I must have been a last-ditch effort because while I was still on vacation, they were starting rehearsals, so, like, this was, like, their last <laughs> So they already had the other Bell, which is my best friend, Trudy, who I, that's how I met her. So I said, well, I can start rehearsals with you on the 30th, fly home on the 6th, get divorced on the 7th, pack on the 8th, and be back in rehearsal on the 9th. Does that work with you? How organized. <laughs> and she just kind of blinked. And I said, because Mama's not missing that appointment. <laughs> but the divorce wasn't because you wanted to be Belle. It was, no, that it was, was already planned. That was yeah. because it was a horrible yeah. relationship. <laughs> okay. <laughs> we don't want anyone to get the wrong impression. It was like, no. I'm fleeing it no. all. Calgon. <laughs> it was already on the books. Well, things they say have been to be, I guess. Beshert, just like Barbara Streisand says, Beshert. What does yeah, that mean? That Yiddish is, <laughs> it's meant to be. Oh, see there, that's a... Do you, yeah, do you, so that, that was a six-month contract since it was a new show. We need to point out here that since this is a holiday show, you'll go down in history because <laughs> there was no Disney on Broadway in 1991. Correct. Beauty and the Beast had just taken the entire world by storm to the point where they showed the pencil test and it got rave reviews and they released the pencil test on Laserdisc. That's how much of an impact that movie had. It was risky because it opened with, what, eight minutes of solid singing? Will people mm -hmm. accept that? They did. People take for granted, oh, well, she comes out, she sings, everybody sings, da 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 That was a very daring thing to do. Huge. Major hit. First animated film to be nominated for Best Picture. First one. Mm. Now, Disney had never been on Broadway. You know, just, just sound like Jack Bay. Never been on Broadway. You know, <laughs> I'm building up to a joke, but I'm not. Except that they had done this wonderful Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs live on stage at Radio City, which, if you check your sources, you'll find out Disney in that way and Robert Johnny helped save Radio City because it was going to close and the Rockettes were out trying to get people to support it. And Snow White came out at Radio City in 79. That was the first New York Disney stage production. But Beauty and the Beast was long in the future on Broadway. It was very different. Your show opened the same day that the movie opened. Am I correct? And we were both working there and it was a big, big deal. And a great great show. People were lining up for it. There was never anything like ever before. The show was a little different. The original show had the parfait lady, we like to call it. I think they still have the parfait. Oh, I'm, well, that's nice to know. Cause if you, the original show had the bats that they've known. Oh, the, the bats. bats! That's right, yeah. <laughs> they had like a scary sequence with the dancing bats, sort of like witchy poo. You know? <laughs> <laughs> no, like witchy yeah, that, that was odd. Her. There were bats in the original show. But the parfait lady, oh, thank goodness. Because she's not in the movie and was not in the live-action. You'd think she'd be in the live-action version, but no parfait lady. Yeah, no, that, I love that costume. When she comes out, it's a pretty tight fit on the legs. Mm -hmm. So she kind of, you know, shuffles out. But there are two jello molds, I believe. I don't think the jello molds exist anymore. I think that's no longer in there. But the two jello mold girls come out holding the top part up. So she looks like a parfait. And then when they drop it, there's a woman inside of it. And That's so they right. Drop it and it becomes a gown. 
It always reminded me of the two-headed dolls I had as a kid. So there is a book out now. It's called... Beyond the Tiara, The Stories That Influence the Legacy, Disney Princess, by uh, Emily Zemler. Yes. Forward by Jody Benson, who's the voice of Ariel the Little Mermaid. Emily writes for a lot of major publications, and Andrea is in the book. I am. I'm on page 123 through 125. And it confirms that because of that show, that convinced the powers that be, especially Michael Eisner, that Disney could work on Broadway. That show had a lot to do with creating an entirely new area. Now it's just commonplace. Oh, there's a Broadway Disney show, blah, blah, blah. That wasn't the case then. So, Yeah, there was no Disney theatrical back then. And thank you for that, because you're the reason why I'm actually in that book, because you're the one who recommended Well, she interviewed me, and I said, well, you got to interview Belle. Yeah, so my friend Forrest Mallard is a Disney employee currently. He does these fantastic mini documentaries. Yes, I've seen them. They're very good. Yeah. He interviewed me for the Beauty and the Beast one. He said something about how Beauty and the Beast ended up getting on Broadway, and I said, I know exactly how that happened. So I relayed my part of the story, and I said, but you really need to talk to Chase Senge and Don France, who were the director and producer of that gig I did at the Waldorf Astoria when Michael Eisner was presented with an award. That was the night that he finally said, now we can do this on Broadway. They know the history that went before that. They had tried and tried and tried. It was scrapped and scrapped and scrapped. So they know that whole story. So Forrest interviewed them. I hooked him up with with them. And now it seems like the documentary is going to be bigger than he originally thought. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. So just look for it in some form, folks. Forrest's videos are not the garden variety, what you don't know about Disney, what Disney doesn't want you to know, under the ground of the ground of Disney. And they go on and on and on. Single-handedly, he's put together some really fine, solid documentaries. He just did one on Muppets, and they're loaded with information I didn't know. There's so much that's true that can be discovered. It's too easy to just make up stuff. The hard stuff is finding people who know. So I'm glad you mentioned that. Yeah, yeah, um, he's he's a lovely new friend. He just I'm really impressed with the work he does and I was giving him a pep talk last night. I was like, "You can do this. You're capable of it." You do that for a lot of people, you know. Well, I appreciate it when people do that for me, so I feel like that's what we're here for. We're here, here it, to help each other. Absolutely. There's a lot too many people who get amnesia when you've done something yeah. nice and it's like yep. and and you are, you know. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so I could go on and on, but it's not about that. It's about Hanna-Barbera, and we will talk about Jabberjaw soon. To play the, as you call them, when you would go on stage to play Bell, I'm about to be a cartoon. I've got to go be a cartoon. Can we talk about passing the penny? That's just a classic game. I did Bell for four and a half years full-time, and then I subbed it after that for probably another four years. And then they changed the show, and that's when I was in Tokyo, so I never learned the new version of the show. When you're in a theme park show and you're doing that much repetition, like in that four and a half years, I had done the same 11 minutes and 14 seconds over 5,000 times. Yes, yes. You have to come up with ways to get through it, but still put on a good production, and it's inevitable that you're going to get people playing games on stage. And one of the classic games is Pass the Penny. Mm-hmm. Somebody starts with a penny, and you don't want to be the last one with the penny by the end of the number or at the end of the show. You don't win any prizes or anything. It's just, it's a way to 
challenge your brain to still put on a good show, but at the same time do something a bit cheeky. So if you're sitting in like the front row or something and you see, what are they doing? Are they handing well, you them? shouldn't. Say if the people are doing the waltz, right? Back in the day, the guys used to have the candelabra in one hand and then have the girl's other hand in the other one. That's a perfect time to pass the penny. And it's a little bit more challenging because you're both wearing gloves. You had to be really creative. Mm -hmm. In theory, that was the challenge. If you did it well, you found really creative ways to pass the penny without the audience noticing. If the audience could see it, mm -hmm. then you were doing a good enough job. Hmm. You know, you wanted to entertain yourself, but you also didn't want to let the audience know. That's the goal is have a little fun, but the audience should still see a good high quality show. Keeping it fresh. So it's a stage yeah. tradition. It may go back to the globe oh, yeah. for all we know. Oh yeah, absolutely. When you're doing repetition, you have to do something to keep the energy up. Mm -hmm. For me, as the character, like professional game that I would play with myself, I have two. Like, you know, there was the backdrop, right? Mm -hmm. And the village. You would see the village, and that was my entrance, was the village scene. So every time before I would go out, I would have my head down, and then I would look up, and wherever my eye hit on the screen, I would focus on that, and that would be my impetus, whether it's like a bird or a shop or whatever that would then develop how my character would walk out you know as if i were just walking that day as Belle. Mm -hmm. that was one game and my other game that i've been playing for decades is the producer game on a day when you're just not feeling it or it's the last show and you're like oh i just want to go home or i want to go out i would always pretend that there was somebody in the audience that was a producer that could forward my career you know <laughs> But I would always challenge myself to find who it was, and I always liked to pick somebody who doesn't look like a typical producer, you know, not slick, maybe even looks a little bit like a hobo, and then just gear my energy of that show towards pleasing them, and it works. Any kind of trick you have to work. Wow, that's, that's interesting. Like you know, I interviewed Carrie Butler, who was in Xanadu and many other shows on Broadway, and she said, you know, for those who say, oh, theme park then they should talk to her because this is a person who was a toast of Broadway. And she said, I am so in awe of the people who are working in these shows because, you know, we'll do three shows a day, a matinee on Sunday, and then we take Monday off. They're out in the sun or the cold, given these shows, what, eight times a day sometimes? Mm -hmm. And they got to keep it like it's the first one because the park guest has flown from wherever or driven from whatever. It may be the only time they see it, and this child is going to remember it forever. That's another thing. Children grew up coming to see your show. Mm -hmm. You know, so I actually worked with a girl at Hoop De Doo who her mother was in Streetmosphere at the time, so she would come to the park often with her grandmother, and she was obsessed with coming to see Beauty and the Beast. So she literally grew up as a young girl watching me do the shows on stage and wanting to be that, and then I eventually got to train her in it. You've got to also figure, how many people are video, back when there was videotape, now it's just digital with a phone, how many people mm -hmm. took that show home, and it's their home movies, so to speak. Mm -hmm. So it's reached, maybe not by television or by the internet, but it's reached millions and millions and millions of people, because mm -hmm. that was the era where you recorded everything. So that entire show was recorded by countless people. So it really did make history, and then from that, you went to a completely different role. And we did have Dave Pruxma on earlier, who was the animator of Victor and Hugo, 
in uh, Hunchback of Notre Dame, on stage you played Laverne, which was the Mary Wicks role. Yeah, 10-minute contract talk went from princess to gargoyle. (laughs) Couldn't have been more different, but probably loads of fun, because you could just... Oh, it was the best gift Disney ever gave me, because... I was still an ingenue, because you have to understand in the business, there's a finite amount of time you can play certain roles, right? I happened to be the ingenue type at that age, and I still still looked like an ingenue, still sounded like an ingenue, but they gave me a role where I got to learn how to be a character actor, and they paid me to do it. They paid me to learn how to set myself up for a longer career, because had I only been an ingenue and reacted differently to that contract talk... I can imagine my career would have been a lot shorter at Disney, or stopped altogether. I was never attached to being a princess. It was a great gig, but I knew it was a gig. Everything in its time, you know? And mm-hmm. Yeah, I mentioned the Hoop-Dee-Doo review. You know, I think the Beauty and the Beast show, that's got to be the longest running of the in-park shows. In-park, yeah. Hoop-Dee-Doo. Yeah. The Hoop-Dee-Doo review, kinda... which you were Dolly in, that at one time except for COVID, was the longest-running show in the history of musical comedy because it started in 74 and really mm-hmm. never stopped except for COVID. And there's three shows a night. That's the hot ticket at Walt Disney World, for those who know. That's yeah. a very popular show. Yeah. Well, back in those times, I did I did Flora. Like, I was the go-to maternity cover, Flora, because back at that time, a lot of the women who did Hoop-de-Doo were starting families, and so I did Flora a lot back in the 90s, and I wanted to do Dolly so badly, and I kept asking the director, I was like, hey, can can I do Dolly? I would love to do Dolly, and he, was, he just couldn't see me as anything but an ingenue at that time. I was like, but Peter, my personality is more Dolly Drew. And he was like, I just don't see it. So it wasn't until 2010 when I ended up learning Dolly, and I did that for, I think, five or six years. Dolly is sort of the Carol Burnett kind of. Yeah, the Annie Oakley kind of comedy, but very strong country gal, western gal. Yeah, the unsinkable Molly Brown kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That show has become a phenomenon. People just desperately, there's always a line for standbys. Folks, we invite you to stand by for part two of our visit with Andrea Canny as she takes us back to her roots, past and present, at Kings Island, the first theme park home of Hanna-Barbera characters. <laughs> 